Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. Rising through the ranks at Karen Millen and All Saints, Hannah Coffin launched Needle and Thread in 2013 after spotting a gap in the market for contemporary, feminine, timeless pieces. Launching exclusively with ASOS, the brand was soon stocked by major retailers including Net-A-Porter and Harrods. Tapping into a growing demand for affordable luxury, Needle and Thread quickly expanded to launch its e-commerce site in 2015, a bridal collection in 2016, and is now a global brand loved by the likes of Sarah Jessica Parker, Drew Barrymore, Fern Cotton and Jessica Alba. Hannah, welcome to your sheer lux success story. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have to say it is wonderful to be here in your very sparkly offices. They are probably the prettiest offices I think I've ever been to. Thank you. It's a very nice backdrop to a podcast. I'm sorry that everyone else can't see all the embellishment and sparkle that we're sitting amongst. Yeah, there's rather a lot, isn't there? Heaven, absolutely heaven. (laughs) Let's start with your first fashion memory. So my first fashion memory is dressing up with my sister. So I don't know if you had this experience, but when I was little, jump sales were a thing and my sister and I had a trunk of fancy dress and it was full of Chanel dresses and Dior at a time where you know jumble sales just had these gorgeous dresses in I mean, it just doesn't happen these days you know everything's sold through different outlets but this was a while ago and so how did it come to have Chanel and Christian well, Dior I dresses I don't in? know we just lived in the Cotswolds and these jumble sales would just have all these like gorgeous dresses so we would have these like silver lurex gowns and I remember this one Chanel dress was black and white printed so twill and my sister and I were like tottering around in our bedrooms <laughs> in this absolutely gorgeous stuff with little like fur jackets and you know handbags and Heaven. so yeah so I think that was one of the first things that really sparked my interest in fashion oh you said that and now I'm looking around it all makes <laughs> sense I don't need to ask you anything else the rest no, of history yeah you used to make your own clothes as a teenager I did what did you used to make well I'm a bit embarrassed really to talk about it now but at the time smocks and leggings and boots were a thing so <laughs> it sounds really dated now but at the time, you know, patterns weren't readily available. So I would be trying to make my own patterns as well. So I'd imagine if I saw those garments now, I'd be horrified uh-huh. at the kind of proportion and the cuts of them. But at the time, it was good fun. So you were making your own clothes as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And you then decided to study fashion and textiles. I did. So was that always the plan then? Yeah, it was. I just couldn't imagine doing anything else, in all honesty. It was just a bit of a calling. Ever since I was a child, I was always obsessed with sewing, embroidery, knitting, which I was never quite so good at. But it was just a real passion for me from a very young age. Were there other people in your family with that talent or was it yes, unique to you? I come from an annoyingly creative family where everyone seems to be really good at everything. My grandma taught me how to sew. My dad can draw anything and build anything from carpentry to you know building extensions on the house. My granddad can make furniture. 
like everyone is just really creative. Really. So it was in your blood, you yes. went to study fashion and textiles, mm-hmm. when did you do that? So I studied at Ravensbourne okay. and it was just the most brilliant course, it was really creative, it was pure design and we learned how to print, how to draw artworks, how to engrave screens, how to mix our own colours, so there was nothing particularly practical or business or you know particularly helpful for the outside world but in terms of creativity it was an amazing experience and your degree lasted for how many years three years and what happened after that you left I left and I got a job at Karen Millen so I literally graduated on the Friday and I started my first job on the Monday so it was all a bit full-on wow you were pretty driven Um, then well I was but also you know I'd been offered this job and I was afraid to not start immediately you know when you come at yeah exactly they might offer it to someone else you know how did you get the job through a friend so a girl who I studied with in the year above me she was already there and she reached out to me and said that there was an opportunity so I went for an interview so you started the Monday after you left university and you were there for how long I was there for three years in what role as a junior designer and then as a designer and I was focusing on prints and my time there was really formative actually so if you imagine like you know I came out of studies and didn't know anything about business so my time at Karen Millen really taught me about product margin merchandising how to fit a garment to the female body price architecture production what happens when stock doesn't turn up the fact that it needs to look good on a hanger so all of this discipline actually suddenly came in so really it felt like doing another degree Mm, if that mm. makes sense so you spent three years there. I did. And then from Caramelant to All Saints, yes. quite yeah. a different brand. Yes. How did that happen and why? Very different brand, aesthetically. So I went from Caramelant to All Saints when the chairman of Caramelant moved to All Saints and he bought the business. And it was at a very exciting time of All Saints. It had a a real cult following, if you remember, at the time. And the women's wear was performing well, but they were very keen to expand that and bring an element of femininity, obviously with a bit of a, you know, gothic grungy touch. Mm. But nonetheless, there was a demand from the consumer for actual dresses rather than just shrunken down menswear. So I was one of the team members brought in to start working on that. And that was what year? That was 2002, I think. And talk to us about your journey at All Saints. I know you were successful there and you climbed the ranks to be design director. What did you learn during your time at All Saints? What were the highlights? So my time at All Saints was really, really intense. I mean, the work ethic you needed at the time was quite extraordinary. So I was there for eight years and I was the design director for the last few years. So I had four departments, about 75 people in my team and exceptional people like extraordinarily talented designers production technical people um, and are you doing any design with 75 people under you not by that no, stage you're managing, yeah, you're managing the teams. yeah absolutely and that's one of the reasons that after eight years I really wanted to get back to creativity so by the time you're at that stage in your career you're managing budgets travel schedules margin people you get further and further away from the product and Mm. that was what I was really passionate about so after eight years I was ready creatively for a different color palette and a different aesthetic but also I was ready to have just a completely different experience day-to-day at work having said that I mean Mm. you were Caramel and you were at All Saints yeah to somebody that wants to design wants to have their own brand like you have now yeah would you say that that's really 
key to work for another brand before doing it on your own? So my recommendation to anybody wanting to start up a brand would be to get some experience. I think it's really, really invaluable. I think the temptation of coming out of education and straight into a brand can absolutely work and lots of people have done it. For me personally, the learnings that I've had in the workplace, live examples, seeing things go wrong, seeing things go well, and taking those learnings into your brand, I think potentially can fast track your success. So you left All Saints to start your own business. Mm -hmm. Did you know exactly what the business was at that point? No, I didn't. I think looking at the brand now, it was really obvious that it would become this because this is my natural handwriting, my natural taste level, and it's the perfect product that I want to be working on. But when I left All Saints, I needed some distance to get some perspective, to get back into my own creative handwriting again. And it was really important that I took some time to assess the landscape of the industry as well because for me launching a brand is quite a meaningful commitment and um, once you start it's difficult to <laughs> yeah, stop just a bit. yeah exactly so it gains momentum so it was really important for me that the brand dna was right and that there was an opportunity and a gap in the market and what i was really missing in my wardrobe was absolutely reliable go-to brand for any events that i was going to or celebrations or dinners or if I was going to brunch or anywhere special that I just wanted something a bit unique and special and I just couldn't find that at a sensible obtainable price point. Do you remember that eureka moment when you went right this is it it's these really glamorous girly feminine dresses that I'd be missing in my wardrobe. Yeah, it definitely, it started to dawn on me. And that's when I started to get really excited because not only did I think, oh, hang on, I can work on the product creatively that I want to work on, but I think this is a real business opportunity as well. Is there a way that you sort of solidified the concept in your mind? Were you doing market research? Were you talking to people? How did you actually define it as what we see today? I was speaking to loads of people, so pretty much everyone in the industry that I knew I was bending my knee. Can I come see you? I want to do my own thing. Can I come and pick your brains? absolutely. And that continued for the first couple of years of Needle and Thread. Like, everyone in the industry's had a coffee with me at some point (laughs) to give me some advice or to steer me in the right direction. And I've been very lucky with how generous everyone's been. People are, though, generally, on the whole, aren't they? They're happy to help and chat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you say, I'm a bit stuck, or what's your opinion, I value what you've got to say, I think people are really up for sharing Mm. their knowledge. So you've got the idea. What did you do next? Did you write a business plan? Did you work on the branding? Oh, my goodness. So I wish that I could say to you, yes, I developed a really sophisticated three-year business plan, and off we went. But that's just not the case. I went to Apple and bought a laptop, and then I booked a flight and went to India and just kind of started. And Um, why India? So through my career I'd manufactured in lots of different territories including Turkey, Portugal, China, Shanghai, Europe but India was always my favourite country. I just love the people, I love the culture, I love the artisan nature of their skill set and they hand these skills down through the generations and it's just so beautiful and so pure and creative and I just felt that that territory would translate what I had in my head the best so I went to India and we started connecting with factories 
that I'd worked with before and the supply chain were very, very supportive. And although we didn't have a formal business plan, we didn't have orders, we didn't have, you know, a huge backer, the supply chain were very entrepreneurial with us and decided to back what we were doing. Because that can be hard, can't it, to find the factories? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's one of the first stumbling blocks that any brand has got to overcome. You've got to find a supply chain that will work with you and grow with you because in the beginning you can't always hit the minimums you know for every line that they manufacture they have a minimum unit requirement and if you can't meet that then how do you make it how do you get your brand off the ground you know I've heard it said that China for volume India for detail yeah I think there's a lot to be said in that I think China is quite an extraordinary manufacturing territory the quality can be very very consistent very stable very reliable they're typically pretty good at delivery performance you can do some really really amazing product in China but for me I wanted the artisan handwriting so you had your supply chain behind Mm -hmm. you did you have any designs at this point yes well I say that I mean it was all happening at the same time and it was to be fair it was a bit of a blur So in the first year, I was in India for about six months of that year, and it was tough. I didn't have family out there. Uh, So you were based there? On and off. Like I was doing two or three, four weeks at a time in the UK and India, and I was working with an amazing designer who's still with us today, our head of design, and we would work with the beaders. We'd go to the sequin markets. We'd go to the fabric markets. We'd choose thread colors. We'd be getting fabrics dyed, and it was very entrepreneurial very raw and very very early so we really built the brand from the ground up god amazing and she's still with the business today she's still with the business today yeah incredible so six months on and off you were designing at the same time Mm -hmm. what was the first piece you designed well it was a little capsule collection actually that we launched exclusively on asos and it was a high summer delivery so it was soft brights lots of mini dresses it was aimed at sort of summer i suppose party season i remember some of your very early collections i don't remember that one yeah you've moved on quite a bit from there haven't we you? have really moved on you know you're talking a few years down the line and you're talking now we're in the uk we've got a team of 45 in india we've got about 35 team members so with that that we've layered in expertise after expertise yeah, with pattern cutters, designers. We've learned a lot. We've really found our groove and who our consumer is and what it is that she wants from us. And although some of the DNA remains with us from the early days, the product has evolved hugely sure. and is continuing to do so. And I think that's what's so important about any brand, really. It's all about innovation mm-hmm. and just you know constantly challenging yourself and constantly mm-hmm. changing. So it was sold on ASOS. You came back, you had your computer, you had your supply chain, (laughs) and you had some designs, and your first dresses, you got them onto ASOS. Yes. They sold. They did. Did they sell well? They sold really well. And that was the first bit of like proper excitement that I got because up until then, I think I'd been shallow breathing for about six months, you know, with the sort of stress and responsibility. Is this going to work? Is it going to, I hope it's going to work. I think it's going to work. Is it going to work? I think as you have this like (laughs) constant internal dialogue. And by then I'd hired people in India, people in London. So that was it. It's like having a baby. You can't Mm. give it back. You know, I had this like tremendous responsibility (laughs) and I'd had to to make it work so there was a lot of stress when it hit down on ASOS it really performed that first collection and that's when I had a bit of a sigh of relief and thought right we're off and how did you raise the capital to start the business because you're in India you mm-hmm. bought yourself an apple yeah suppliers you're paying a designer how are you funding all this 
So initially it was self-funded through savings and in addition to that I was doing consultancy work on the side. So my team was supporting me with some of that and some of it I was doing on my own and essentially between those two routes I was funding and paying salaries and then the invoicing started to come in from stock from the deliveries that we were doing. You said it sold on ASOS. Mm -hmm. How did it sell on ASOS? Presumably you didn't just put the product on the site, or did you? Were you doing any marketing activity? No, there was no marketing activity at all. It just launched on ASOS and it just sold. And I think that's what was so exciting because there was no marketing investment and we had clearly just hit on this pulse and there was this demand for that price point for that type of product. And that's what really gave me the confidence to carry on. And what was the average price point with that first collection? So that first collection, the average price was £195. And today, because we've increased the innovation, we've elevated the brand so much, our average is about 350 And how key do you think the price point has been to your success so yeah. far? I think it's really key. And it's one of the values that is really important to me. As I think I mentioned earlier, I really wanted a brand that women could afford and could either save up for or maybe she's got more disposable income and she can buy a couple at any one time but it was absolutely vital that it was affordable so the first collection saw really well on ASOS it and did. what happened next so the second collection we rolled out in a traditional wholesale model so we hit the wholesale selling period and we sold the likes of Net-a-Porter to Harrods to Len Crawford and that's it we were off on this wholesale journey and I mean whoa the dream Net-a-Porter Harrods how did that happen I think we just came into the marketplace with a very disruptive product at a very disruptive price point at the right time when buyers were looking for what we were offering. And have you had any mentors along the way? I have. I've been very fortunate. So I've had lots of my colleagues that I've worked with in the past have been on my speed dial for logistics (laughs) advice or shipping or finance. And also I've had an amazing mentor in Marigay McKee who... The amazing no, He's an industry legend. So to people listening yeah. I mean, who might not know Marigay, she really is a sort of industry darling, isn't she, yeah. when it comes to fashion and beauty. And yeah. she was fashion and beauty director at Harrods for years. So yeah. you came across Marigay. So I was introduced to Marigay and she was so kind to me. She's been quite instrumental in some guidance and mentoring over the years. And how important do you think it is for entrepreneurs to find themselves a mentor? Well, for me, it was really important because it's quite lonely. Being an entrepreneur is quite isolating. It's all on your shoulders and, you know, you have this idea and you kind of hope it's going to work, but you don't always know, but you can't tell people that you don't know. Don't show any weakness. (laughs) It's a bit of a strange existence, to be honest. So for me, having people who have got experience that is valuable and advice and tips and guidance and even sometimes just listening and just sharing in you know some confusing decision making or something like that is just hugely comforting so you were wholesale yes in Crawford yes Harrods yeah tell us about the success you had with those brands and what it's been like working with retailers like that so that was really exciting for me and I remember we launched on Netporte when I was in New York and I was on my phone like constantly checking like oh have any size eights sold out yet have any size tens and I remember waking up at you know a jet lag and I was awake about sort of four or five o'clock in the morning and I was checking Netporte and like everything was sold out 
I was like, oh no, like what's happened? Did we deliver all the sizes? And I was like frantically trying to like go through all the logistics reports to make sure we delivered everything. And actually it just sold out. It's sold. It's actually sold. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And I remember like taking screenshots of everything sold out. And it was so exciting because, you know, Net-A-Porter is just such a phenomenal platform to be on and had such an amazing reach globally Mm. to these women that I wanted to be dressing. And equally with Harrods, it was a similar journey for me going into an iconic global destination department store and seeing your collection like hung and women you know grabbing at the dresses and shopping was just yeah it was amazing and do you think that sellout collection on Natapulte was a real turning point for yeah, the business I do it was a real tipping point and what it did was encouraged further wholesale stockists to start stocking us and again it just gave us more confidence to start exploring different design routes more innovation taking the prices up and by that I don't mean just increasing like for like prices I mean giving her you know more value for money like more design content yeah it was an amazing turning point for us and marketing wise Mm -hmm. what were you doing so I would say for the first couple of years we really did almost nothing and I know that's a really unusual business model but we've always just done things our way and what's right for this particular brand and what I've learned is that every business is completely different and the needs are unique to every business what we needed in the early days were people were hiring people quickly training them up instilling processes discipline refining the supply chain making sure we were shipping on time so for me my priority priorities were designing and delivering product that sold that fit with good wearability so that our customer would come back and be a repeat customer so for me the first couple of years that's what my priority was and fortunately we benefited from a lot of PR and marketing by being stocked with Netaporte or Lane Crawford or Saks or Liberty and a lot of that word of mouth and you know we had a lot of natural organic brand ambassadors so for the first couple of years we actually just didn't have the bandwidth to invest in in that area. And talking about your team, you said you were investing in good people. Mm. Who were the early people that you brought on into the business? So most of my head of departments now. So Amy does my head of business development. Amy was the first person to join me. Alison, my head of technical. Alison joined us very, very early on. Jenny, my head of design. And Raki, my head of design in India. So those girls were both with me very early on. So right in the beginning, rather than start trying to run a business with people who are a bit more junior, with perhaps not enough experience, we actually invested in quite senior people right from the get-go. Talk to us about the launch of Mm needleandthread.com, your e-commerce platform, your websites. Yes. What does that look like now? What portion of your sales is driven by your own e-com versus your wholesalers? So the website today looks very different because we actually launched a new one yesterday. Oh, (laughs) and you're smiling. That's (laughs) a good sign. I love it. It's It's so good. We launched the other site in 2015. And obviously, digital just evolves so quickly that by now, we'd outgrown it it just wasn't an agile enough platform so this is only iteration two yeah wow that's amazing that it it hung on for that long we're all just buzzing right now because we've got a new toy and it's just so agile and we can merchandise really easily and we just love all the features and the checkout experience shopify plus and we love it and the checkout is great and that was for me a priority that it's mobile first and it was just really easy for her to it's transacting yes it is 
no bugs Good. so far. So in terms of percentage of sales... Where does e-com come into it? So e-com is growing quite quickly for us. So historically, we were wholesale-led business, but the e-com is now beginning to grow much faster than wholesale. So we anticipate that overtaking wholesale in the next year. And did you need to raise further investment to launch e-commerce? At that point, we actually brought in some investment into the company. And I think most brands get to a natural point where they need to bring in some sort of investment to take that big leap to the next size. So we brought in some investment. And with that funding, we launched a website. We also launched a bridal collection. And we hired the next round of people. Talk to us a bit about the collections and the evolution in terms of the product and the range. You've mentioned bridal. Mm -hmm. How many different designs are there in the collection at any one time? So I'd say in a year we design about seven or eight hundred in a year. Seven or eight hundred? Skews, yeah. So including all the colourways. And that's with how many collections a year? We have five collections a year and we have a couple of bridal collections a year as well. And how is bridal going? I mean, it's made for bridal, right? I know. Well, we didn't start out with bridal. Interestingly, I put myself through university by working in a bridal gallery. I had no idea that all these years later I would have a bridal collection. It really wasn't the original business plan at all. But the customer was demanding it, and that was so interesting. Customer care inbox was just inundated with girls asking, does this come in ivory? Can I have a sleeve on this? Do you do veils? I'm getting married. Can I have this in long Do you do veils? Yes, we do do veils. Do you? Yes, they're gorgeous. So I think for us, it was just a really natural progression, Mm. and we felt that there really was this demand. So we designed a collection, and Net-A-Porter took it immediately, and it continues to be a significant significant part of the business. What's the average price point on a wedding dress from Needle and Thread? Our bridal gowns range from £650 up to £950. Pretty smart price point, isn't yes. it? You're a bride. Yeah. In terms of the non-bridal yes. pieces, yeah. what are the best sellers? So currently, out of our pre-fall collection, the Aurora gown is absolutely flying out, and so is the dress. I'd say we've had 15 different influencers wearing that one, and... We've also got a dress called the Garland Flora Dress, which is printed shawl, absolutely beautiful. And again, that's just hit a sweet spot with our customer. She's loving that. We've had to reorder it three times already. And it's quite trendless, isn't it? Mm. You know, you talked about your own handwriting. I mean, you couldn't mistake anything here for anything else. How important is it for you that you don't follow the trends? And does your customer ever want you to? For me as a businesswoman, it's really important that we're timeless and we're not trend-led. So we're really aware with what's going on in the industry, what our competitors are offering, what the nuances are in the industry at any given time. But for me, it's really important that the product stands the test of time, that it is timeless and it's an investment. Mm -hmm. And I think as a businesswoman, being in fashion and anything trend related is really risky Mm. and you can have success one season with something trend led but then can you repeat that next season so it's really difficult to do trend and I think from a business perspective it's quite risky do you therefore find it hard to keep innovating no we don't at all we've just got such an amazing design process here and the team are so talented if anything I have to kind of rein them in a bit well yeah with 700 (laughs) different skews a year clearly you don't find that difficult no but how 
do you make such intricate dresses so affordable? Is it down to the volume? Because, I mean, the detail in these dresses, I mean, I keep talking mm. about the sparkle I'm sitting <laughs> on. It is incredible. You know, how are these dresses costing 300-something pounds? It's a couple of things. Largely, it's economy of scale. And secondly, it's the business model and the way that we've set the business up. So we have a very, very efficient way of working with very little wastage we have a very high strike rate and by that I mean whatever we sample pretty much goes to production the odd thing gets cancelled but essentially we're really efficient and we work really really hard with the suppliers at making the product as efficient as possible in production in the most slick way that's the easiest for them to produce but that can still make margin Uh so it's quite difficult to explain the way we do it but because we've got an offer in India we have people in the factories all day every day partnering with them and it can be something as simple as moving a seam so that you only have one panel instead of two panels in a skirt half for example and that can just mean the production process is just much faster for the factory and there are millions of little nuances and tricks within the product that we can do to gain efficiencies for the supply chain and I think one of the other reasons our supply chain partners so seriously with us is because we manufacture with them 12 months a year so we're very very reliable for them whereas lots of brands will go into India and perhaps manufacture a Christmas collection or a high summer collection and then nothing in between but we just have this constant capacity planning with them so they can really rely on our business Mm -hmm. month in month out. Sustainable I imagine you are. You're nodding. Yeah. How important is that to you? I mean, it's important to all of us these days. I mean, it really is. The change for the better. So we're really, really excited about sustainability at the moment, and we can't go into much detail at the moment. We're actually working on a capsule collection with somebody. Very exciting partnership on a collection that should be about 70% sustainable. So we've done lots of great business initiatives already. All of our packaging is made of non-virgin materials. The paper in the head office is recyclable. The we, our rubbish is recycled. We shred everything. So in terms of day-to-day office hygiene, I think we're in a really good place. I think, as with lots of brands, there's always room for improvement. So we're exploring lots of things at the moment, like fabrics made of non-virgin materials, for example sequins made of recycled plastic so we've got lots of really exciting initiatives going on at the moment let's talk about social media okay you mentioned the aurora dress yes 25 influencers have been seen in yeah Talk to me about your social strategy and how you work with influencers. Okay. So in the early days, honestly, we didn't have a strategy. And I think it's really important to be honest because you can stand here today as this, you know, quite a big brand that sells globally. And of course, we have strategies and three-year plans and it's all very serious now. But in the early days, even by year three, we didn't have a strategy around influence. We had relationships. We had organic ambassadors for the brand. But we weren't doing any paid activity at all. It's only really in the last couple of years that we've started partnering with influencers in a slightly more formal way and doing sponsored social media, some digital marketing. It's a relatively new function for us. And how's that going? It's going really well. I really like it. I love the digital side, actually. It's not my career path and it's not what I studied, but I really love the instant nature of digital and social media celebrity wise i mean god if carrie bradshaw was here she'd be fighting nora wills to the rail wouldn't she I mean, <laughs> she really if was yeah. going in the days of sex in the city oh my goodness don't i um, love that who was the first celebrity 
well, that you saw wearing Interestingly, it was Sarah Jessica Parker. So I don't think she was the very first, but she was certainly one that I got really excited. And I was in Formentera at the time, and the team, like, we were all just, like, texting. And, I mean, the thing is, we're all obsessed, obviously, with Carrie. So for us, that, that was, like, a real moment, and she looked amazing. And who else? Jessica oh Albert is a fan. I mean, Definitely. I mentioned a few. Drew Barrymore. Um, yeah, Nicole Kidman wore us on Christmas Day. Julia Roberts was on the front of Harper's. I mean, there's just tens and tens of these amazing women. Um, how do you deal with the competition? Because I'm sure it's a bit like when Self Portrait launched, mm-hmm. there were suddenly half a dozen identical brands. I know it's a bit the same for you. What do you do? I think, you know, it keeps you on your toes mm. as a business. There will always be an element of IP risk, and that's intellectual property mm-hmm. or design infringement, that regardless of who you are, what you're doing, if you're selling well, somebody will try and copy what you're doing. We have the benefit of our product being really complicated and quite difficult to copy. So we've absolutely had IP threats. We've taken two British brands to court. We've invested a huge amount in our design protection. But at the same time, we've invested in innovation Mm. to keep being that step ahead, being hard to copy and offering the customer something new and something different. So don't get me wrong, it's really annoying. And some days you think, oh, God, really? Because as a business, we've invested so much in the people and the design and the travel out to the supply chain or the vintage research. And, you know, you come up with these formulas that commercially are really successful. And then all of a sudden, somebody else is doing it and potentially not in such a sustainable way and therefore the price is cheaper and it is really frustrating but as a businesswoman I have to step back and just think okay well what's next it's a challenge that we need to overcome and it drives us forward as a brand drives you into jumpers and tops (laughs) into wonderful sweatshirts yeah they've been a great success haven't they yeah they've been really good for us and I think our customers just really ready for us to start branching out into the wider wardrobe and the sweatshirts and t-shirts that you've talked about they're just super cute they're really easy to wear but you've just got this like little encrusted bow Mm. or butterfly or dragonfly on your sweat so you can dress them up and down you can tell they're needle and thread so if you're a brand fan they're just perfect Mm. and what's next so I think we've touched on a couple of things. So the website only went live yesterday. So we've got a really exciting digital journey ahead of us for the next six months where we'll be plugging on extra features and launching our own blog and talking about the sustainability aspects of the collection. So we'll really be evolving the website. And then, as I touched on, we're working on this sustainable collaboration and we're looking to launch that at the beginning of next year. And that is super exciting. And more innovation, more design. You know, the moment we're working on Spring Summer 20 and that collection is just looking so beautiful. And I think the more we invest in people, the more people we hire, the stronger the collections are getting season on season on season. I mean, it sounds like it's all gone so well. What's been the hardest thing in building this successful brand that you have? Well, I would say people. So it's almost impossible when you've got a business growing this quickly to hire enough people, the right people at the right time with the right skill set, and then everybody being able to progress and develop and grow at the same time in line with the the business needs. Mm. It's really, really hard. So what advice do you have for people? Invest in HR early. So we've had formal HR for a couple of years now, and it's been an absolute godsend. So everyone in the business has PDRs. We have 
progression planning. People have KPIs. They know what they're supposed to be delivering. And it's a real investment. It takes a lot of time up, but it's just so important. Mm-hmm. Great advice. And what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start their own fashion brand? So I think firstly... It's really important to think long and hard about, is this a lifestyle that I'm prepared to take on? Because starting a business is very, very much like having a baby. You can't give it back. You go through the terrible twos. You go through the sleepless nights. And it is a real life commitment. And Needlands has been going for over five years now. And we're at the stage where, you know, my baby's gone to school. So I think, firstly, it's not something that you can just do for a year or two. It really is a a lifestyle commitment. Mm. Secondly, I think it's really important to take your time and think about why am I doing this where is the gap and whether that's in hair clips or beauty or hats or socks whatever it is that you're interested in doing is there a gap in the market why is the consumer going to come to me and I think it's really important to be quite clear with that because it's so saturated in this day and age especially with there's brands launching weekly especially through social media now and you need a brand that is going to stand out and have a clear message and I think lastly once your brand is up and running I would suggest not diversifying too early so I think it's really important to become a destination for something Mm. rather than trying to do everything all at once nail the dresses before you do the sweatshirts is what you're saying yeah pretty much Uh, and what about advice that you've received from others that you would pass on so I was always advised to surround myself by really, really good people. And that's what I've done in my whole career and in Legion's Red. So don't be afraid to hire people who are better than you at certain things. You mentioned babies. Yes. You have a young baby. I do. I always like to ask mothers how they're juggling. You know, the juggle's real. The struggle. juggle's real. Yeah, the juggle um, is real. I can confirm. How are you doing it? Well, I was blessed with a really good baby. Teddy's happy. He's an easy one. But it's not been easy, I have to say. So I only had two weeks off. And that's not out of choice. That was out of necessity. And it's not something that I would recommend anyone doing. But it was just what my personal family circumstance was. And Teddy came everywhere with me. He came to sales meetings. He came to photo shoots. He was passed around in the design meetings for the first three months. And for me, that was amazing because I didn't have to leave him behind. And then he had to start nursery really young. And that was really hard. But he loves it and he's thriving. And for mothers wondering whether to take the plunge to start their own business, what would you say? Do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you believe in your product and you think there's a space in the market for it, then go for it. Wow. Thank you so much, Hannah. I'm just thank in you. awe of what oh, you've created. I mean, it, it really you. is every girl's dream. Thank uh, you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and we will be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.